0: Good morning, Church, and thank you for joining me this morning. Before I start, I need your help in sorting out a problem with this beardo. So uh, my wife, Janine, loves it. I hate it and I think it makes me look way older than my 40 years old. And so I need your help. Please would you vote on the public chat whether a yes or a no. Yes, keep it, or no, cut it off, and so we can restore some harmony to the port of marriage. Thank you so much. So this is our fifth month under lockdown. And uh, what a journey it's been and you know for each of us we've been faced, faced with different circumstances, different opportunities and challenges, but one thing that we can all agree on is that God is good and that he promises to work all things together for good for those who love him and walk according to his righteousness. So if it's not good he's not finished working yet and what the enemy has meant for harm God will use for good. So whichever way you look at it, it's a lose-lose for the devil. I'm actually surprised that he carries on with the same tactics. Anyway, in this season, there have been many prophetic words about what God is wanting to do in and through us. And one of those words is reset. Sometimes we do things because we've always done them. And sometimes we don't do things because they've never become habits or parts of our routines. Um, But what what God, I believe, is wanting to do in this time of reset is that we've been given this chance to step back from the fray, step back from the hustle, step back from the things that have contributed to our normal and reassess their place in our lives. And it's part of the pruning process that we would bear much fruit. There are loads of good things in the world, lots of sparkly things that distract us, lots of activities that vie for our attention and our affection. But I believe that right now is a time for us to be intentional and fight for the things that are important, fight for the things that will produce life and stay away from those things and say no to those things that subtly steal from us. Our lives can get really really complicated and yet the Father is calling us to this place of simplicity to come as little children. There are so many shoulds and have tos and other really unhealthy expectations that we need to turn away from and enter into an intimacy that comes from resting in him. Jesus is inviting us to slow down. So today we're going to be taking a look at Acts 2, which many would say is about the origin of the church, but before we get there I'm going to try and put this passage into some context. So the book of Acts is essentially part two of Luke's Gospel and it carries on the narrative from Jesus' death and and resurrection to his ascension back to the throne of heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, fully glorified as the Lamb of God. We have the disciples, who are now called apostles, who have just come through literally the craziest three years anyone could ever imagine. Men who have this impression of the promised Messiah, that he's going to overthrow the Roman occupiers and bring freedom to their tyranny. I'm sure that their emotions were pretty shot as they see their dream vanish before their eyes as Jesus hung on the cross, exemplifying the non-violent, self-sacrificing, unconditional love of God. Now then we have the resurrection and I'm sure they were thinking, okay, so now it's gonna happen. He's gonna come and kick some proverbial Latin posterior to another universe and free us from this tyranny. But no, yet again, Their hopes are dashed as Jesus levitates his way into the clouds, never to be seen again, at least not in their lifetime. And Jesus, who said that it would be better if I leave, he also gives them this strange instruction. He says in verse 4, Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait here until you receive the gift I've told you about, the gift the Father has promised. For John baptised you in water, but in a few days from now you will be baptised in the Holy Spirit. We then have the angels giving them hope, saying, guys, don't worry, he'll be back. He's in heaven, but he will return in the same way as he left. Now, we read this from the perspective of a 21st century Christian who's read the book and we know the outcome. But imagine living in the moment. I cannot begin to fathom what it must have been like to have been called by Jesus to follow him, And then for the next three years, you see limbs restored, you see demons flee, you see blind eyes open, the mute speak, deaf ears open, dead raised, crucifixion, resurrection, angelic visitations, the kingdom being demonstrated every day, even on the Sabbath. Something has happened in the hearts of this rough group of men. There's been a supernatural awakening within them. They believe nothing is impossible, and yet there goes Jesus. I'm pretty sure their confidence was pretty dashed. If we get into the minds of the apostles, maybe at this point they were thinking, well, what else have we got to do but to obey what he said? So off they go to the upper room, as Jesus instructed. And when they get there, the number grows from 11 to 120. So this definitely wasn't someone's attic. The first thing they do is they choose a replacement for Judas. And if you read the account, it's a pretty macabre description of what happened to Judas. Definitely not something for PG church on a Sunday morning, but they pray, they cast lots and Matthias is chosen to replace Judas. So then we head into chapter two and the day of Pentecost. And Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. So 50 days after the crucifixion. If you, in case you weren't aware of what happened, The word says that they were in one accord, united in prayer and gripped with one passion. The Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who hovered over the waters in Genesis, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, came into the room. Now, this wasn't like someone blowing in your face. It was a supernatural hurricane. In fact, verse 2 says it was like a violent wind, so overpowering that it was all anyone could bear. Now if that wasn't enough, a pillar of fire appears and it separates into tongues of fire that engulf each one of them. They were filled, and check this out, they were equipped and empowered with the Holy Spirit and inspired to speak in other tongues. Now in case you're thinking that it's never happened since, my great-great-aunt led a revival in the early 1900s in the Solomon Islands and the same thing happened. They were all gathered in one room, um, in a spirit of repentance actually, and the mighty rushing wind of the Holy Spirit blow through that, blew through that place and revival started. And I've heard about tongues of blue flames on people's heads appearing in meetings, so it has happened since. Anyway, my point here is that the Holy Spirit came on people, not to give them goosebumps, although I'm pretty sure there were loads of those, but it was to equip and empower. For what? To be witnesses. Church, if we are using Holy Spirit as our feel-good drug, we have missed the point entirely. Now Jerusalem at the time was this pretty ethnically diverse city and at the sound of the ruckus the city came to see what was going on. They were hearing the good news of the gospel spoken in their own language. Peter gets up and he preaches his first sermon, and 3,000 people are added to the fellowship of believers. The beginning of the ecclesia, or some people would say ecclesia. Some of you remember that the word apostle actually comes from the secular word that we could translate culture changer. And in the same way, the word that we've translated church, ecclesia, was not a religious word, it was actually a word used to describe the assembly or council of city leaders. And I think this is quite interesting that Paul used that term. He took that secular term to describe what we now see as the church. So we have Peter preaching the word, all those thousands choose the way. And then we have verse 42. And I'm going to read from verse 42 to the end of the chapter. So every believer was faithfully devoted to following the the teachings of the apostles. Their hearts were mutually linked to one another, sharing communion, and coming together regularly for prayer. A deep sense of holy awe swept over everyone, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. All the believers were in fellowship as one body, and they shared with one another whatever they had. Out of generosity, they even sold their assets to distribute the proceeds to those who were in need among them. Daily they met together in the temple courts and in one another's homes to celebrate communion. They shared meals together with joyful hearts and tender humility. They were continually filled with praises to God, enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were coming to life. So much richness in this passage and I'm going to read the last sentence and then we're going to work backwards. And the Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were coming to life. So the first thing I want to highlight here is that the disciples added to their number. No, the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labour in vain those who build it. And Jesus said, I, I will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, of course, what I'm not saying is that we don't need to evangelise. We know that we are called to be witnesses and that we are called to disciple nations. But it is Jesus who builds his church. And I believe the previous verses give us some pointers to us seeing the Lord add to our number. So we have six things that the early church did that I believe sets this foundation for growth. So here we go. Number one, devotion to the apostles' teachings. Now this for us would equate to the study of the word and being doers of the word, not just hearers only. Now we have access through the internet to some of the best teaching from highly gifted people from all over the world and I'm all for listening to podcasts and watching online church, but they can't, they can't become a substitute for us reading the Word. And when you read the Word, don't settle for reading words on a page, but expect an encounter with the author. Invite Holy Spirit to come and teach you, have times to do word studies, but have times where you just read until he speaks to you directly. Write down what he says and then do it. Also, when you read the word, remember that it was written to a specific group of people in a specific time for a specific purpose. Ask yourself these questions. What genre is the passage that I'm reading? Is it poetry? Is it narrative? Is it prophecy? Because each of those will require a different lens to read through. What was the culture like when it was written? Why was the author writing it? What principles can I take from this passage and apply to my own life? How does what I'm reading fit into the narrative of the entire Bible? What does this passage say about the nature of God? What about the nature of humanity? What does it say about me? Reading the word is not like reading a novel. It's about quality, not quantity. So take your time over it, meditate on it and allow it to soak into your soul. Number two, their hearts were mutually linked with one another and the Greek word here is koinonia a fantastic band from the 80s and 90s that many of you will know but that's obviously not what Luke is talking about right here. Koinonia is translated fellowship, sharing, participation. I like to describe it as doing life together. So unpacking this further I'm actually going to read a definition that I found in BibleStudyTools.com great resource for you. First, the fact and experience of Christian fellowship only exists because God the Father, through Jesus Christ the Son and by the Spirit, has established in grace a relation, a new covenant, with humankind. Those who believe the gospel of the resurrection are united in the Spirit through the Son to the Father. The relation leads to the reality of relatedness and thus to an experienced relationship, a communion, between man and God. And those who are thus in Christ are are in communion with not only Jesus Christ and the Father in the Spirit but also with one another. This relatedness, relationship and communion is fellowship. And finally the word koinonia was used to refer to the spirit of generous sharing in contrast to the spirit of selfish acquiring. The early church was known for no one being in need, they shared everything and some even sold possessions and land to meet the needs of those in the family of God. And I just want to take this time to commend and honour each one of you who've given sacrificially over this lockdown period. Some of you have actually gone without certain things because you've chosen to give instead. This is the heart of Koinonia. Also church, we need to get back to having fun together. I think even before lockdown, we weren't particularly good at it. But as the restrictions are gradually lifted, as we come out of this, let's make time to have barbecues and picnics with friends and invite some people who aren't friends as well. Maybe have some games nights, some quizzes, movie nights, wine tastings or orange juice tastings, whatever. I believe the Father delights in those things. Number three, communion. You can see there's an obvious overlap between each of these points and moving from fellowship we continue with the theme of union with God and believers through to the sharing of the Lord's Supper. This is something we love to do as a spiritual family. It's a memorial to the centrality of the cross to our faith. It's about remembering the new covenant that came in with the death of Jesus on the cross, our sacrificial lamb. And going back to the previous point, It's what unites us as believers. So we have this vertical and horizontal symbol of the cross where God has removed the lie of separation from him. He's restored relationship with him and the horizontal where he's restoring relationship between mankind. In participating with the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of all that was achieved on the cross. Salvation of our spirits, restoration of our souls and healing of our bodies. Jesus came That he might destroy the works of the enemy. This is what we celebrate. I've got to tell you a funny story here. When I was younger I lived with my family in this large um, country house and we had two flats and we had numerous lodgers coming and staying and my parents were amazing at bringing together everybody in the house for regular times of prayer and communion. And one particular time, we had my grandmother from the bottom flat and actually Tim Wealdon's mother, Maggie, who lived in our top flat, come and join us for communion. It was a very serious affair. You know, We uh, opened a, a bottle of red from the coal cellar for the occasion and we passed the cup around and everyone was looking very holy with their eyes closed, obviously meditating on the significance of the blood. But when it got to me, my eyes smarted. It tasted like vinegar the wine had been had corked and it was disgusting but of course being a serious moment and we're all very religious I passed the cup on to Maggie. Maggie took one sip and spat it all out in disgust in front of us all. You know of course we all know by we all knew by then that it was corked and but we were all way too holy to to say anything but talk about destroying the moment so just a word of advice when you take your bread and wine make sure the wine is not corked. Now one of the things you'll noticed in that passage is that the, the, the apostles made a daily practice of taking the communion and I know that a number of people in our congregation have actually been doing that on a daily basis and it's just really brought a sense of deep intimacy and communion with the Father. Number four, prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 16 to 18 says this, Let joy be your continual feast, make your life a prayer and in the midst of everything be always giving thanks, for this is God's perfect plan for you in Christ Jesus. You want to know what God's plan for your life is? It's actually really simple. Let joy be your continual feast, make your life a prayer and in the midst of everything be always giving thanks. Make your life a prayer, Now, other translations say pray without ceasing. Prayer is partnering with the will of God, it's coming to agreement with and partnering with his plans. It's about calling forth the reality of heaven to be manifest on earth. It's about conversation. When was the last time that you began your prayer time with, Father, what do you have to say to me today? Or Father, what do you think about this situation? Would you help my heart align with yours? Like any conversation, listening is more important than speaking, that's why you have two ears and only one mouth. Prayer is about expressing our desires and our needs, but then listening to his. It's about repentance and forgiveness. Ultimately, it's about relationship. Relationships require communication to thrive. Let's learn to be a praying people. If you're struggling to pray, I just want to give you some ideas to start with. Start reading through and praying through Psalms. Pray through the, the Gospels or pray through Paul's letters and start partnering with Holy Spirit and praying for God to transform you into his likeness and form Christ in you in all his fullness. When you have a revelation of Christ in you, you stop praying for revival because you realise that you are revival. Can I also suggest that you begin to write down your prayers? Because when the answers come in, you can tick them off and you can celebrate the answer and release a testimony at the same time. And start by setting realistic goals in the time of your praying. You know, rather aim for 10 minutes and do it than aim for an hour and not do it because you get overwhelmed and discouraged. So how do you make your life a prayer? And I believe it involves companionship and intimacy with Jesus, talking to him about everything as you would a best friend. That might be a temptation, it might be a failure, it might be a victory, or it could just be an observation. Jesus, I love the way you made the grass move when the wind blew. Die Musters, who have known for almost 40 years, is someone that I think is an example of someone who's made their life a prayer. I remember growing up and every time I had to have a conversation with Di, at some point in the conversation a need would arise and she would immediately start praying, bring the need before God, and then we'd just carry on the conversation as if it was completely normal. I believe that's what it looks like to make life a prayer. So whether you pray alone, in twos or threes, or in a larger group, let's be that praying people. We've got a number of prayer initiatives going on throughout the week. We've got community houses of prayer set up all over the city. We've got Ben Morris leading morning prayer at 8.30. We've got Craig Kinnear leading a weekly prayer time. And we've got prayer for the persecuted church on a Sunday morning. So please get involved. Let's Let's be a praying people. Number five, and possibly my favourite, eating together. I don't think there's anything specifically spiritual about it but there is something that happens when we eat together. And I just want to read to you something that I read in the the Washington Times, actually an article I read. It says, experts agree along with the prospect of the eating experience being delicious and enjoyable, gathering around a dining table together has far reaching physical and mental health benefits for everyone of all ages. At the table we share stories build upon relationships learn from each other's mistakes and triumphs and not only creating bonds that define us but also architecting the hallmarks of our well-being in fact this time this time benefits every aspect of your well-being emotionally physically socially occupationally spiritually intellectually and mentally which all acts and interacts in a way that contributes to our overall quality of life love it There's a reason why almost every culture on earth eats communally. Janine and I were listening to a testimony the other day of a man who desperately wanted to reach the young men in his community, but they had no grid for church, so he felt the Lord say, build a table and feed them. So he did. He literally built a table, bought pizza and invited these guys in. And over time he initiated conversation about what it was like to be a son, what it was like to be a man, and week by week the table grew. Literally, he had to keep on building onto his table, because over time he had about 60 guys gathering around to eat together and talk. And over time, every single one of them gave their hearts to the Lord. That's church. Last one, number six, praise and worship. Now, the verse here says that they were continually filled with praises to God. Church, can I encourage you to allow thanksgiving and gratitude to propel you into praising God. And when you praise him, tell him why. None of us who are parents would say to our child, I praise you, and leave it at that. That's just weird. But why do we do that with God? Now, David in the Psalms, he says, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 105 starts with, Let everyone give all their praise and thanks to the Lord. So here's why he's better than anyone could ever imagine. Psalm 138 verse 2 says, I will bow down towards your holy temple and will praise your name for your unfailing love and your faithfulness, for you have so exalted your solemn decree that it surpasses your fame. Psalms is full of descriptions of things God has done that causes praise to be on our lips. Praise and Worship takes our eyes off our situations and circumstances and directs our attention to the One who can intervene. We get to dwell on the character and nature of the Father and allow our hearts to be drawn to Him. Praise and Worship is decorative, it's warfare, it shifts atmospheres, it reminds us of whose we are and who we are. And singing together brings a a sense of unity and community. And I'm sure that all of you cannot wait to get back to worshipping and praising together. So to summarise again those six things, we've got the word, fellowship, communion, prayer, eating together, and praise and worship. Now, I really don't think that God is a God of formulas, but I do believe he's a God of principles. And when we look at the results of what the early church did, we see miracles, signs and wonders, a sense of holy awe, extravagant generosity, joy, humility and oneness, and of course, rapid growth. So church, definitely not rocket science, but we do have here some keys to discipleship and growth that I want to encourage you to make part of your lives as families and as life groups. As lockdown restrictions continue to lift gradually, we want to be intentional now to establish habits and practices that come not from religious duty, but a desire for the king and his kingdom. Habits or disciplines that will require us to say no to the sparkly distractions around us and say yes to intimacy with him. As we do these things, I really believe that we will see a fresh outpouring of Holy Spirit. He will come upon us with a demonstration of power of the kingdom realm and people will be added to the church. Amen.